Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the second half of Genesis chapter 14 today. You remember the first half just by way of review looking at last week. Last week was when the kings of the Mesopotamian alliance decided to come over and teach a lesson to the kings of the five cities that we looked at. You remember we had a map that we were looking at. So the kings of the five cities, two of those cities being pretty famous, Sodom and Gomorrah, Mesopotamian alliance came in, swept through the land, basically won every battle that they engaged in up until the point where they were leaving the land. And Abram said, what? My little nephew's up there in that group. And uh, he amassed 318 people from his own clan, went up there and, and routed them, ended up winning the battle against them and took the spoils. And that's where we're picking up from, is right after that battle. We're looking at Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. The king of Sodom is coming to meet Abram, and they end up meeting in a place called the Valley of Shaveh. This valley is actually very close to modern-day Jerusalem. It's actually, there are two valleys that border on the southern end of Jerusalem, and the eastern end of Jerusalem, where those valleys come together, is thought to be the place where this ends up taking place. So we're in the proximity of Jerusalem, and we're going to end up meeting a character that that's going to have some bearing on. But here we're meeting the king of Sodom. We actually met him in the last study. Verses 10, 11, 12 give us a little bit of the background on this guy, if you forgot it from last week. Somebody mind reading verses 10, 11, and 12. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Thank you. So here we have that glimpse looking back then. The king of Sodom was one of the ones that engaged in that battle. Here the king of Sodom comes to Abram at this time after the battle's over. So he's coming up to Abram, but before he ends up saying anything, we're introduced to a new character in verse 18. Somebody mind reading that one. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. So here we meet a guy named Melchizedek. We don't know the name of the king of Sodom. He's kind of a bit player in this story. His name is never given to us. But we meet a guy who is named in verse 18, Melchizedek. He turns out to be a king as well. A king of where? The king of Salem. Salem, there is some discussion as to where exactly Salem is. Uh, But I tell you what, any time that you have various proposals for what something means or various proposals for, in this case, where some place is located, if the Bible weighs in and gives you one of the answers, all right, let's say you have five answers to choose from because you've got these guys who've proposed answer A, B, C, D, or E. And if the Bible weighs in and says that D is the right answer, I'm going with the Bible. Identify myself in the group that lets the Bible interpret the Bible. And fortunately for us, we do have a place in the Bible where it's interpreted for us, where Salem actually is located. Psalm 76.2 puts Salem with Zion, or puts Salem with Jerusalem. All right, so this is an original naming of Jerusalem. Ends up becoming Jerusalem. This is Salem. So we have this guy who's the king of Salem, or the king of what later becomes Jerusalem. His name is Melchizedek. 
He brings out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. His name, also in dispute, but the Bible helps us again. His name is a combination of two words, Melech meaning king and Sedek meaning righteousness, so king of righteousness. And so when it comes to people debating at the as possible different uh, proposals as to what his name could mean, the author of Hebrews helps us out. So we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Hebrews 7.2 says, translated, king of righteousness, talking about this guy. So it, it fills it in for us, makes it very clear. So here we have this guy, Melchizedek, king of Salem, later to be known as Jerusalem, his name meaning king of righteousness. He brings out bread and wine, and he's the priest of God most high. By the way, I mentioned Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2 as defining his name as king of righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 3 points out something interesting about this guy. Melchizedek ends up being this character that basically his appearance is three verses. Not much. In this story, we have three verses that mention this guy, Melchizedek. We're only on the first verse, obviously. This Melchizedek character, we don't know where he comes from other than the location. All right, we have a clue there. He's the king of Salem. But as far as who his mom is, who his dad is, we don't know. What his genealogy is, we don't know. And he ends up bowing out of the story just as rapidly as he showed up. We don't know what happens to him. It doesn't say anything about his birth. It doesn't say anything about his death. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 3, ends up saying that that becomes something significant in the point he tries to make later on. That it says there in Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. So the author of Hebrews takes the fact that we don't know about his past, we don't know about his future, it doesn't say anything about him dying, and ends up using that information for something as we'll make a more complete picture as we go here. All right. He ends up bringing out something. What does he bring out? Yeah, he brings out bread and wine. He brings out food. He brings out food and drink. And typically, military etiquette, uh, what would happen is if somebody was the defender of your town or the protector of your city or they went and engaged in battle, right, the beneficiaries of the warrior's endeavors would supply provisions, all right? So one possibility as to why he's bringing out bread and wine is maybe he's bringing out to the troops as provisions because they've engaged in battle. One of the beneficiaries may have been this king of Salem, this Melchizedek guy. So the agreement is when you go engage in battle on behalf of somebody else, they should be supplying your needs. They should be supplying food and drink. And the men, they went miles and miles. They're engaged in battle. They're, they're coming back. It's been quite a few miles that they're coming back. They could be pretty famished. You're not going to be able to stop at a in and out on the way. All right? There's no Del Taco or Taco Bell on the way back. All right? So it would be nice to have some food and drink. And here the king of Salem is bringing out some food and drink. Others propose, no, this might be something a little bit different. Instead of bringing out provisions for the army or the famished men, you know, they're going to die without food or drink. Maybe it's something else. And they, they refer to some agreements and alliances in ancient history among the Hittites, which are located generally in this area as well, is that you would share a meal when you would have a peaceful alliance. All right, so in this case, maybe this guy, King of Salem, Melchizedek, is proposing an alliance, a peaceful alliance. All right, and he's bringing this out to have a, a meal, a sort of communion with Abram as the victor and the king of, of this, you know, vagabond tribe that went up there and took care of everything and came back down. So it could be an alliance or it could be providing food and drink for the men. Another thing as well that you notice, what are his roles or what are his responsibilities or what are his titles? All right. What roles does he play? Job descriptions, maybe, from that verse 18. He's a priest. Good. He's a priest and what else is he? King. And a king. He's a king and a priest. So this Melchizedek guy ends up being a priest and a king at the same time. That's kind of interesting. And then who is he a priest of? 
God Most High, El Elyon. All right, God Most High. El Elyon is only mentioned outside of this Melchizedek narrative of these couple of verses here. That name combination is only mentioned in one other place. It's Psalm 78.35. It says this, They remembered that God, that's Elohim, was their rock, the Most High God, El Elyon, their Redeemer. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. All right. That one is Psalm chapter 78, verse 35. Verse 19. Somebody mind reading verse 19. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Excellent. Thank you, B. Who blessed whom? Can you tell there from verse 19? It doesn't make it really clear, but we'll find out more as we go, and just for the point of uh, clarification here. Verse 19, he is Melchizedek, the first he, and the blessed him is Abram. So you have Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, so this is Melchizedek speaking now, and he ends up saying, Blessed be Abram of God most high, that's El Elyon again, Possessor of heaven and earth. At least mine says possessor. Anybody else have something different there? Creator. No. Creator. There you go. This word that's translated possessor can also be translated as creator. So here you have God Most High being creator of heaven and earth, or possessor of heaven and earth, or owner is another way you can translate it, owner of heaven and earth, and redeemer of heaven and earth. And when it's used as a redeemer, it's somebody who buys or redeems somebody or an entity from slavery okay so this god most high is described as the creator possessor owner redeemer of heaven and earth moving on from there verse 20 somebody mind reading verse 20 and blessed be god most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all excellent thank you mike so here we have in verse 20 again and blessed be god most high this is that el leon again who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So it's still Melchizedek speaking, and he's speaking a blessing upon Abram. So when he says, who has delivered your enemies, who's the your? Abram. Abram, right. So he's saying, Abram, as he's blessing Abram, God has delivered your enemies into your hands, right? Who gets the credit for the victory in this? God. God gets the credit, and rightfully so. You remember how we talked about last week that that battle and that victory was miraculous, there's no reason he should have won in man's thinking, in man's estimation. All right, God miraculously blessed Abram and gave him the victory. And here Melchizedek is confirming that for us, All right, saying that God, the God Most High, has delivered Abram's enemies into Abram's hand. By the way, that word delivered there, that's a verb. It's megin. And if you were to take the noun version of that, it's megain, and it means shield. All right, This ties this chapter, this section into the beginning of the very next chapter. All right, so we'll look at that a little bit more next week. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Here we have also, when it says there, the way that the verse ends, and he gave him a tithe of all, who paid tithes to whom? Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. Good, Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. Do you know that from this verse or from something else? From here, I, I thought I read there somewhere. Let me see. <laughs> Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Oh, very good. Okay, so your translation committee decided to go with Abram as being the one paying tithes. Mm -hmm. In the original Hebrew, it's not spelled out who paid tithes to whom. We actually have to look beyond this passage to figure out exactly who it is, or at least beyond this verse. But yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. It's Abram. Abram is the one that ends up paying tithes to Melchizedek. All right, what's a tithe? 
Ten. I hear ten. Ten percent. Do I hear eleven? Anybody got eleven? <laughs> All right. A tithe is typically thought to be ten percent. You can pay more if you want, but a tithe is is uh, typically minimally uh, thought to be ten percent. And when somebody pays a tithe, all right, what they're doing is they're not begrudgingly saying, oh, all right, I'll give a piece of what I have that's mine over to somebody else or something else. All right, that's not the attitude. The idea with the tithe is when the person gives the tithe, the acknowledgement or the statement they're making by those actions is saying everything I have belongs to the one to whom I'm paying a tithe. Okay? So Abram, what he's doing is when Melchizedek says and confirms for him what he already knew, that the victory came from God, Abram is paying a tithe to God saying everything I have is his. He's saying this is all God's. I'm just giving a token back as a way to say to pay honor to the one to whom honor is due. That God gave the victory. God delivered. God was the savior. And now Abram in gratitude is treating him as Lord. Okay? And he's doing it through an intermediary. The intermediary being Melchizedek. All right? You've heard the joke about the ties. Oh, you know, I, I willingly give it to God. I take my money and I put it in my hand and I throw it up in the air and anything God wants, he keeps and everything that falls to the ground is mine. Right? No, that's not actually how it's supposed to work. All right? He's paying through an intermediary. In this case, he's paying it to Melchizedek in honor of God giving him the victory. He's paying to God is, in his mind is what he's saying. He's saying, thank you, God. This all belongs to you. It should be the same in our lives. We should be paying tithes, the tithe, as a statement of saying, God, it all belongs to you. We are often really quick to say, yes, God is my Savior. And we'll even acknowledge and agree if somebody says, hey, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Why, yes, he is. Thank you very much. But when you think about it, a lot of people are fine considering him Savior. Oh, that's the popular part. But when it comes down to treating him as Lord, actions speak louder than words. Right? So people might call themselves Christians, might say, yeah, he's my Savior and Lord. But their actions only say Savior, that they're only worshiping his Savior. And by not paying a tithe, it makes a statement that's louder than words that says, no, he's not really my Lord. When somebody doesn't pay the tithe, it's as if they're making a statement that this is all mine. This is all mine, and I'll give to him if I want to, and I'm not going to give to him if I don't want to. And by the way, the New Testament says I need to be a cheerful giver, and I can't be cheerful if I give something up, so I'm not going to give. As if that's the formula that's supposed to be followed. No, no, no. We should give and then adopt the attitude appropriate for that giving, and that is be cheerful about it. Not, oh, I'm not going to be cheerful, therefore I'm excused from giving. Savior, yes. Lord, show it by your actions. All right? We love him as our Savior. We should honor him as our Lord in gratitude for him being our Savior. All right, moving on from there then. Genesis fourteen twenty one. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. All right, so here's what's happened. We've just switched views. Did you see that? We've just closed out Melchizedek. Did you catch that it was nice and easy and smooth and it was a smooth transition and now we're all satisfied that we know who Melchizedek is? No, it wasn't that at all. It was abrupt change of view over to this other person, a bit player, if you will. All right. The Melchizedek guy is really more interesting. He's really more fascinating. We switch over to the Sodom guy, the king of Sodom, and what does he say? Give me the persons. You take goods. <laughs> you know, that's basically, we don't even have a name for this character. We don't know if he's angry. We don't know if the king of Sodom is pleading, please give me the people. 
We don't know if he's relieved or demanding or elated. We don't know what's going on in this situation here. Commentators are divided as to what his mood is, what his tone is. All right. So it goes back to this king of Sodom guy. And he's asking for the people, but saying, keep the goods for yourself. It was understood that if you went to war on behalf of a, of a city, that at the end of the fighting, the victor gets to keep the goods. All right. And even the people, they have a right to the goods. And typically the people are negotiable. All right, so the king of Sodom is like, can I have the people back? Go ahead and take the goods, all right? You can keep the goods, because that's the etiquette for that day, all right? But he wants the people back. By the way, this is the city of Sodom. This is the city we've already been introduced to as being full of very wicked sinners. I'm thinking if I'm Abram and I know anything about those people, I'd be like, you can have the people. <laughs> you know, I don't want them in my camp. Because you hang out with very wicked sinners, what you can have more and more and more wicked sinners. All right. So Abram, probably not for that reason, he ends up uh, saying what we have here in verses 22 and 23. Somebody mind reading just verse 22 right now. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. So here we have Abram referring to something we haven't seen yet that we didn't know happened. It sounds like Abram is referring to some pledge that he made before probably he went to engage in battle. Abram, it sounds like, before he went to engage in battle, probably had a time of prayer with God. And perhaps in that time of prayer, it probably went something like this. Dear Lord, please protect me. Watch over my family. Please give us victory. And Lord, I promise any goods that come from it, any people that come from it, I'm not going to keep those. All right. It sounds like there's a pledge that he probably made that went something along those lines. So now the king of Sodom comes and says, keep the goods for yourself. I want the people, if that's not too much of a trouble. And Abram says, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Verse 23, somebody might reading that. But I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Excellent. Thank you, B. So it sounds like he made a pledge before he went to battle. Raise his hand before the Lord. Anything that I get from this, I, I'm not going to keep it, Lord. Just please deliver me and my family. Help me to go up there in safety. Help me to come back with my nephew and, and his family. It sounds like he made some sort of pledge beforehand. At least that's uh, what's being intimated here when he's talking to the king of Sodom. Here's another thing, too. This reveals something of Abram in that he's maturing spiritually. If you can see that, he is now trusting God. More so than we saw in some, you know, he's been wavering, but now he's getting more and more solidified in his trust of God. He's got assured riches that he has right to. As the victor, he gets to keep the spoils, right? right. He gets to keep the goods. That's in his hand. It's like the bird in the hand, all right? He can keep that if he wants to. The military etiquette of the day says, yes, that's rightfully his. He's willing to give that up, trusting God to supply his needs and make up the difference, right? He's willing to give up those lesser riches for the possibility of greater riches. Those are assured lesser riches. And he's trusting, going for the trusted greater riches. We have the same offers extended to us, all right? The world will occasionally come to your door and offer you something that you may even be entitled to or that you may have the right to. Or that nobody's going to say anything bad. And what you do with that could impact decisions that you're going to make down the road as to whether or not God can bless you in that. Because sometimes God may want us to say no to worldly riches for the hope of receiving greater spiritual riches. 
All right, so Abram's doing something like that too. He's trying to honor God in his decisions, even if it costs him something. And he's willing to trust that God honors that kind of obedience. So we have a situation here. He's giving it all up. He's giving it back to the king of Sodom, except for one little thing in, in verse 24. What does it say there that he ends up keeping in verse 24? Or that he ends up saying, yes, this much, please. Except nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Excellent. So what he's saying is basically, you know what? Just supply the basic needs of my men. You know, they're famished. You know, we'll, we'll go for some provisions along those lines. But nothing lasting or nothing permanent. So Melchizedek's out of the picture. Now the king of Sodom's out of the picture. Except Melchizedek shows up again. He shows up in one other place in our Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 is a pretty short psalm. Seven verses. And despite being a short psalm, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And so from this short, most quoted psalm in the New Testament, we have in the middle of it, verse 4, a statement that includes Melchizedek. And it's kind of a strange statement. If somebody would mind reading verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of order of Melchizedek. Excellent. Good job, B. Let's unpack this a little bit. Number one, the author of the psalm is traditionally thought to be David. He doesn't identify himself in it, but that's pretty much the consensus. All right. So David is penning these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he ends up saying, the Lord has sworn. In that reference there to Lord, that's Yahweh there. That's the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. By the way, if we didn't look at that, uh, it's actually from Genesis 14:22, where it said, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, that's Yahweh, God most high, that's El Elyon. So here we have here Yahweh being likened unto the God most high. So in verse 4 of Psalm 110, the Lord, that's Yahweh, God most high, the possessor, creator, owner, redeemer of heaven and earth, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. So now he's going to say what the Lord has said, what the Lord has sworn. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who is he talking to? Some would say, oh, he's talking to David. Whoa, what? No, he's not talking to David. If you look at verse 1, David clarifies who's talking and about whom he is talking. In verse 1, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord. So it's somebody above David. So David is saying, whoever this character is, we don't know who he is yet. David is saying, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, is saying to somebody above me, is saying to my Lord, to my master, he's saying, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek. A priest, according to the order of Melchizedek? Here's why that's weird. All right? We're looking at Abram. He's going to end up having a son, Isaac. He's going to end up having a son, Jacob. Jacob ends up having his name changed to Israel. He ends up having 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and on and on it goes until his last son, Benjamin. All right? The priests end up coming from the tribe of Levi during the time of Moses. So by the time you get to Moses, Moses has a brother who's older than he is. What's his name? Aaron. So down here, you, you go down several hundred years, 400 plus years, you have Aaron and Moses. Brothers, both from the tribe of Levi. The priests come from the tribe of Levi. Not all Levites become priests, but all your priests 
are from Levi. Does that make sense? So they come through Aaron, who comes through Levi, who comes through Jacob, also known as Israel, who comes through Isaac, who comes from Abram. All right? So we're only right here in the story. By the time David writes, he's talking about a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. If you have a priest, it's according to the order of Aaron or according to the order of Levi. It's not according to Melchizedek. Who's the Melchizedek guy? I don't know. Who's he related to? None of these guys. We don't know who his father is, who his mother is. We don't know when he was born. We don't know anything about his death. We don't know anything before or after this little picture that we have of him. Three verses in Genesis. All right? So Melchizedek is a man of mystery. He's like this figure. That, who is that guy? All right? The priests, we know where they're from. We know the order that they come from. They come from here. David says there's another priest. He's coming from a different order. This psalm, Psalm 110, messianic. All right, messianic. In the Old Testament, you, do, you don't necessarily get that image. You might be thinking, Who's he? is he talking about somebody that's contemporary with him? Is he talking about somebody yet future? Is it somebody from the past? Until you get to the New Testament. When you get in the New Testament, here's what you find out. You find out that Jesus considered Psalm 110 messianic. And he's in an argument with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees don't dispute his position, his understanding of the psalm as being messianic. You have Peter in Acts considering this psalm messianic. You have the author of Hebrews, this psalm messianic. Who is being described there as a priest forever according to Melchizedek? The Messiah. Messianic. Messiah. David's looking forward to a guy still yet future. The Messiah, who is according to the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. Interesting. What do we know about that? Not too much from there. The only other place you can find Melchizedek in your Bible is in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, chapters 5, 6, and 7, you have the bulk of the mentions of Melchizedek, more so than even Genesis 14. When you get over to Hebrews, chapters 5, 6, and 7, it talks about Melchizedek, and the first place you find the mention of it is over in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. What does it say there? As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So here we have a clear reference to that Psalm 110 passage, right? Mm -hmm. Same wording. Mm -hmm. Who is he talking about? You have to go backwards. Look at verse 5. Somebody read verse 5. So also Christ did not... Wait, who? So also Christ. Who? Christ. Christ. Keep going. Keep going. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of my truth. Excellent. Thank you. We have the author of Hebrews telling us who that is. We have the author of Hebrews telling us that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing down Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the entire Bible, he ends up penning these words. The middle verse of that says, there's going to be a priest, a high priest. He's not going to come from the line of Levi. He's going to end up coming from a different line. He ends up being a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And who is it? It's Christ. He tells us in Hebrews that it's Christ. He didn't come from the line of Levi. He came from Judah. Hmm. That would fit. Maybe he is talking about Christ. Maybe there is something there. What are some of the other things that it says here? According to the order of Melchizedek, here's something interesting. It says in chapter 5, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, and having been perfected, he, Jesus, Yeshua, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Ooh, that's an interesting statement. Remember I talked about the pattern of Abram. He was delivered, therefore he looks at Lord as his Savior. God Most High is his Savior, right? He was delivered, but he also looks at him as his Lord by giving a tithe, right? He pays the tithe. So it's Lord and Savior. That was the formula we had over there. 
You love him as your Savior, and in gratitude you serve him as your Lord. Here we have this statement, he became the author of eternal salvation, that's Savior, to all who obey him, that's Lord. Obedience as he's your Lord. Gratitude for being your Savior, having to do with eternal salvation, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There it shows up again. And then it shows up again over in verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us at even, quote, Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is very clear. This priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is Jesus. In chapter 7, he ends up making this correlation, and he doesn't say Jesus is like Melchizedek. He says Melchizedek is like Jesus. What's the difference? You're putting Jesus as the greater over Melchizedek. What are some of the correlations he makes? Here's one of the correlations that he makes. Number one, his father. We don't have a complete picture as to who his father was. So it was through the eyes of the people contemporary to Jesus. It says here in verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, made like the Son of God who remains a priest continually. He's describing Melchizedek. But the author of Hebrews is saying, hmm, don't you see some of the parallels is kind of what he was saying. If you look at verses 1 and 2, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Verse 4, jumping down to there. Now consider how great this man was. He's talking about Melchizedek, all right? He's, he's talking about the superiority of Melchizedek over the superiority of Levi and the priests that come from Levi over Aaron and the priests that come from Aaron. And here's how he does this. This is kind of weird. He says, Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abram honored Melchizedek. And in doing so, the lesser bestows upon the greater the gift. So in this case, the person who pays the tithes, Abram pays the tithe to Melchizedek. Abram is lesser. Melchizedek is greater. Melchizedek blesses Abram. You don't give a blessing unless you're the greater, giving a blessing to the lesser. So in that formula, you have Melchizedek greater. You have Abram lesser. And then he says, he says right there in chapter 7, I recommend you read chapter 7, by the way. He says that God instituted a system in place where the brethren, where the Jews, depending on the tribe you were born from, you would all bring your tithe to the priests. You would bring your tithe to the priests. The priests are from the tribe of Levi. So all these other tribes, the tribe of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and all the other ones, bring their tithe to the tribe of Levi, to the priests. That makes them lesser to the tribe of Levi. And then Levi, not yet being born, is in the loins of, this is the phrase that the author of Hebrews uses, is in the loins of Jacob, also known as Israel, who's in the loins of Isaac, who's in the loins of Abraham. He's basically saying all these people and all this tithe paying makes them the lessers because Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek. And he makes the statement, this is kind of wild, that because these guys are in the loins of Abram, that they're paying tithes to Melchizedek. Now, you and I are going, wait, I work in a court of law, and that would not fly in my court of law. All right, you got to understand, they were allowed to use evidence different back then, you know, to make their point than we do today. All right, so here's the point he ends up making. Melchizedek's greater than Abram. And then he says, once you got that correlation, Melchizedek is greater than Abram, and Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. Melchizedek is greater than all these priests. And Christ is greater than Melchizedek. So you end up with a categorization of superior, greater, and moving down with Christ at the head. Christ at the head of greatest. So Christ is greater than Melchizedek. Christ is the perfect fulfillment of what Melchizedek was a type. Melchizedek was a symbol. Melchizedek was a type. Melchizedek was a picture the fulfillment of that is in Christ. 
the fulfillment of that is in Jesus, in Yeshua. He's the perfection of the type that we saw in Genesis chapter 14. We have an illustration or a picture or a framework or a structure in Genesis chapter 14 that has the name Melchizedek on it that ends up being fulfilled in Jesus, in Yeshua. King of peace, king of righteousness. He brings out bread and wine. Bread and wine, what could that be? Could he be providing provisions for the famished and weary men? Just as Jesus provides his body and his blood that we would perish without spiritually, just as the men would perish without physically. Providing provision. Or maybe it's a symbol of a communion, a meal, an alliance or a treaty where there's peace between the parties as Jesus' blood and body did for us. And that communion supper that we commemorate shows that we have an alliance and that there's peace between us and God, that we can have peace between us and God. It ends up being a picture where we say, he is my savior and I love him for that. And he's my Lord. He's my savior and out of gratitude for what he's done for me, I serve him as Lord. So we see in Genesis chapter 14, a model that's fulfilled by Christ. And you've heard me say it before, prophecy is patterned. Genesis 14 is a prophecy of a coming Messiah who's fulfilled in Christ. We see that prophecy is pattern. We see that pattern in Genesis 14. We see the fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is all over the place in the Old Testament. All right, You just kind of have to take your time and chew on it and find, oh, he's here too. He shows up all over the place. And that when we embrace him as Savior, don't neglect to embrace him also as Lord. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and this time that we've been able to spend with you here today. We pray, God, that you would help us by speaking to us individually. What is it that you want us to take from this lesson? What is it that you want us to dwell upon? What is it that you want us to think about? What challenged us? Where do we need to study more for ourselves? Help us, Lord, to go having met with you personally and having heard from you personally. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. You guys have a wonderful week.